0: The holidays are upon us, a time to snuggle with your loved ones and feel cozy under your blankets, but there are plenty of reasons to still be scared. Reasons that lurk within the dark winter's night. When the days grow shorter and the snow begins to fall. The children of France anxiously await when Père Noël will pay them a visit. They'll leave him biscuits and carrots for the reindeer, pretending to sleep as he trades the treats for presents, but in the back of all of their minds is a hint of fear. Fear that they won't see the festive red cloak fluttering around their tree. Instead, they'll see the dark robes. They'll hear the sounds of a whip over the crackling from the fire. Le Père Foitard has paid them a visit instead. The Christmas Butcher Long ago, there was a man who lived in a small village outside of the city. Everyone knew him as the butcher and nothing more, for he wasn't one for pleasantries. He dedicated most of himself to his work and whatever was left over to his wife. His demeanor didn't put people off from his shop, as he was the only butcher for several miles along the major road to and from the cities. But hard times hit them all as disease spread through the land, the dark touch it had been called, and there seemed to be no end in sight. The man who used to come home, bones aching from working tirelessly, was now finding himself closing the shop early. Never before had he needed to keep the meat from spoiling, as it would always be gone in a few days. He could no longer discern between the smell of rot from the corpses and that of his life. That was until one morning came and new visitors passed through the now desolate village. Oh, how they smelled so sweet, he thought. They looked it too. They were adorned in finery, no holes to be seen in their coats and shirts. The three boys walked on the road that cut through the village, passing by his butcher shop. They ran, chasing one another, laughing as they tackled each other to the ground. They lay there flushed and gleeful. The man approached, looming over them, to ask if they might be hungry. They explained that they were They had been walking for a long time, traveling to the city on the other end of the road to enroll in the boarding school. That was when the man became certain these boys came from wealth. He straightened up and put on a smile that was nothing short of malicious but the friends did not notice because they were much too excited for their promised meal of veal and wine. They returned to the shop, where the butcher's wife had been waiting for them. Her husband insisted she pour the boys wine as he prepared the meat, looking into her eyes long enough to project his intent. She nodded and left, re-emerging moments later with three silver cups filled with dark burgundy. The boys cheered and drank merrily quickly downing the wine. It wasn't long before the butcher and his wife heard three soft thuds. They were deep asleep, a result of the belladonna the butcher's wife had laced their drinks with. The butcher removed their clothes gently as to not damage them. He found a coin pouch in each of the boys' pockets. With their spoils set aside, they looked to the bodies left behind, knowing that they couldn't allow them to wake up. The butcher knew just what to do, and, with his largest knife, he did what he had been born to do. He carved. He drained them of their blood. He separated their limbs and sliced up each section like he would a cow. His wife started a fire and hung a pot above it, filling it with water and vegetables. The butcher brought her the chunks of meat, ready to be placed in the stew. The aroma was intoxicating, unlike any other they'd ever experienced. It grew too large for the small butcher shop. It leaked out of the windows and cracks in the doors. It formed a cloud over the village, becoming a beacon for all those left untouched by the darkness, as well as those far beyond. What the butcher and his wife did not realize was that this was the night that the saints may cross over. As they sat down to feast upon the large bowls of stew before them, the cloud had been seen by Père Noël. The plumes of darkness concentrated right above the shop, and his sled dove right in. The entire place rattled as it landed on the roof, but the butcher and his wife continued eating as they had never eaten before. They were ravenous, insatiable. It seemed the more they ate, the emptier their stomachs became. They did not stop until a heavy boot kicked down their door. Standing in the entryway, his red cloak whipping behind him. Père Noël demanded the butcher tell him what he had done. His wife sank into a corner, pleading for mercy. The butcher's face curled, the shadows deepening. He told him that he did what needed to be done. That those boys did not deserve what they had been given. They had not worked as hard as him. They had not known what real pain was. Until now, he snickered. The sounds of his laughter grew strangled and he gasped. Something felt wrong. His stomach began to rumble, visible from the outside. His shirt shook as the stew in his gut fought its way back up. Looking at his wife, her dress moved as if a babe were kicking inside her. Père Noel's voice boomed through the room. You feel as though you know pain, he asked. You feel as though you have the gift of deciding punishment? His words fell upon deaf ears as the butcher and his wife writhed on the floor. The undigested pieces of flesh crawled from their mouths, finding others of its kind. They fused together until three separate bodies became whole again. Père Noël had resurrected the boys and, with a wave of his hand and a bright light, he sent them home. He turned back to the butcher and his wife and said, Was it worth it? A small amount of coin for your lives? The couple looked at one another confused, but immediately realized what he had meant. The butcher looked at his wife, or through her. He could see the stone wall behind her through her ghoulish presence. He looked down at himself to see the same. How dare you, the butcher fumed. You will regret this. I'll make sure you do. Père Noël laughed. Perfect, just as I thought, he continued. You are now pure fuetard cursed to roam with me every Christmas Eve. You think you deserve to punish others? Well, now you may, with this whip. A coiled leather whip appeared in the butcher's hand. You may punish as much as you wish, but only to the children on my list. Père Noël had decided his fate, and with his final words, the butcher transformed. His back broke and arched over. His clothes became ragged, dark robes. A long beard now grew from his pointed chin. They departed, Père Noël dragging Père Fouettard out of the shop as he screamed, watching his wife be dragged by imps into the fiery depths of hell. So be good, dear children, as you see, Père Fouettard's whip carries the weight of all his pain, and now it carries
1: yours too. A wealthy man wanted to go hunting where few people had ever hunted. He traveled to a trading post and tried to find a guide to take him, but no one would do it. It was too dangerous, they said. Finally, he found an Indian who needed money badly, and he agreed to take him. The Indian's name was Defago. They made camp in the snow near a large frozen lake. For three days they hunted, but they had nothing to show for it. The third night, a windstorm came up. They lay in their tent listening to the wind howling, and the trees whipping back and forth. To see the storm better, the hunter opened the tent flap. What he saw startled him. There wasn't a breath of air, stirring, and the trees were standing perfectly still. Yet he could hear the wind howling, and the more he listened, the more it sounded like it was calling his name. He thought, I must be losing my mind, but Defago had gotten out of his sleeping bag. He was huddled in a corner of the tent, his head buried in his arms. What's this all about? The hunter asked. It's nothing, Defago said, but the wind continued to call his name, and it became more intense and more restless. Suddenly, he jumped to his feet, and he began to run from the tent, but the hunter grabbed him and wrestled him to the ground. You can't leave me out here, the hunter shouted. Then the wind called again, and Defago broke loose and ran into the darkness. The hunter could hear him screaming as he went. Again and again he cried, Oh, my fiery feet, my burning feet of fire. Then his voice faded away, and the wind died down. At daybreak, the hunter followed Defago's tracks in the snow. They went through the woods, down towards the lake, then out onto the ice. But soon, he noticed something strange. The steps Defago had taken got longer and longer. They were so long, no human being could have taken them. It was as if something had helped him to hurry away. The hunter followed the tracks out to the middle of the lake, but they disappeared. At first he thought that Defago had fallen through the ice. There wasn't a hole. Then he thought that something had pulled him off the ice into the sky, but that made no sense. And he stood wondering what had happened. The wind picked up again. Soon it was howling as bad it was the night before. Then he heard Defago's voice. It was coming from above. And again he heard Defago screaming, My fiery feet, my burning feet, but there was nothing to be seen. Now the hunter wanted to leave that place as fast as he could. He went back to the camp and packed. Then he left food for Defago and he started out. Weeks later he reached civilization. The following year he went back to hunt in that area again. He went to the same trading post to look for a guide. The people there could not explain what had happened to Defago that night. They had not seen him since. Maybe it was the Windigo, one of them said, and he laughed. You're supposed to come with the wind. It drags you along at great speed until your feet are burned away, and more of you than that. Then it carries you into the sky, and it drops you. It's just a crazy story, but that's what some of the Indians say. A few days later, the hunter was at the trading post again. An Indian came in and sat by the fire. He had a blanket wrapped around him, and he wore his hat so you couldn't see his face. The hunter thought there was something familiar about him. He walked over and he asked, Are you Defago? The Indian didn't answer. Do you know anything about him? No answer. He began to wonder if something was wrong, if the man needed help, but he couldn't see his face. Are you alright? He asked. No answer. To get a look at him, he lifted the Indian's hat. Then he screamed. There was nothing under the hat but a pile of ashes.
0: They say it's a legend. Just a story we tell to scare children but I'm here to tell you not to believe a word of it. You would do well to beware of the Yule Cat, no matter what they say. My cousins and I grew up in the Icelandic countryside and spent most of our lives within a stone's throw of our birthplace. For two weeks in December, my saintly grandmother would welcome us into her home so my parents could go Christmas shopping or have some time to themselves. She invited all my cousins as well, a brood of eight when we were all assembled and we made quite a houseful. Many nights after Grandad had made excuses for going off to the pub, Grandma would gather us around the fire and tell us stories. Stories about fairies, Queen Mab, and her ilk, and of the elves and darker things that had once been part of this landscape. She told us stories of Icelandic heroes and filled our dreams with monsters that begged to be slain as we took on our favorite champion's roles But especially around the Christmas season, her favorite story was of Yola Kotarin, or the Yule Cat. He is a giant creature capable of stepping over palisades and creeping into tall buildings. He punishes the lazy and rewards those who work hard and do their work year round. If you neglect your duties, the Yola Kotarin will find your children, never doubt. His favorite meal is children without new clothes in winter their parents having spent their summers at leisure, thankless children he hates as well. Those who scorn their parents work in favor of frivolous things, so be thankful my children that your parents work hard to keep such dark things away. Most of her stories about the Yule Cat involve naughty children who went into the woods at night, spoiled children whose parents found that the Yule Cat had dragged them out of their window and gobbled them up and good children who went rushing home on Christmas Eve to get their clothing gifts before the Yule Cat could get them. My little brother Sven always held a deep fear of the Yule Cat, but I can honestly never remember a time when I was afraid of it. It always seemed goofy to me in my head. I just imagined a cat with giant legs that looked like big noodles. Its body was way high in the air, and its legs just wiggled around beneath it. I had drawn a picture of it for my grandmother once, and she had only smiled and ruffled my hair. Let us hope that if the Yola finds you, he is as silly as you think he is. I had smiled about the idea of meeting the Yule Cat then, thinking of all the monsters and beasts my cousins and I had slain in our dreams. I am not smiling as I write this. I came to live with my grandparents when I was fifteen. My father and mother had been killed in a car accident when a semi-truck slid on the ice and hit them head-on. They say they died instantly, but all I knew was that Sven and I were suddenly without parents. There was never any question where we would go, of course. My grandmother opened her home to us without a second thought. With Grandpa three years in his grave, she said it would be nice to have some company, and we moved into her earthy little cottage. I lived with her until I was 23, attending university, and getting my degree so I could begin a career in architecture. After graduation, I took up residence in my parents' old home so I could maintain the family homestead. The house was on my grandparents' land, so it wasn't as though we had never been back. Sven didn't like to go back to our old home, claiming there were too many memories there, and my grandmother sheltered him quite a bit. When I moved back, I invited him to come live with me, but he declined. He was 17, and showed none of my ambitions. I was worried that if he stayed, my grandmother would coddle him forever, but that was his decision to make. I moved back in around Christmas time, and I decorated my old home like it was my first Christmas. The lights and decorations were still in the crawl space as they had always been, and as I put them up I began to feel a heady sense of nostalgia. My tree stood in full view in the window, and I had bought presents for everyone. I had spent much of my life without much money, and now that I had a lucrative job, I decided to take advantage of the holiday season and spoil my relatives a bit. When I was done, my house had shone out against the darkness like a beacon. I was sitting snug by the fire, a cup of spiced hot chocolate in my hand and a slight buzz, making my mind slippery when my phone rang. My grandma's smiling picture showed from the home screen, and I picked it up as I tried to compose my voice. Grandma was used to people being a little drunk. My granddad had pickled more than sober during his life. But I was still at the age where I was self-conscious about her seeing me like that. I answered the phone and she immediately started in without greeting. Karen, you have not come by to get your Yule clothes. You will need to come back now. I wasn't used to my grandmother being so forceful. She was usually very mild, content to smile and let others do what they would but she seemed upset about this to an irrational level. Tomorrow was Christmas Day when all of my cousins and their families gathered for presents at my grandma's usual Christmas feast. What grandma was referring to was her tradition of giving us clothes to keep the Yule Cat away. This was my first Christmas away from home. I usually got them from grandma when I woke up on the 23rd, but I guess I had missed it since I had moved out. Oh, that's okay, Gran. I'll just get them tomorrow. I'll be there with the others and you can give them to me. No, you must come to get them now and hurry. I need you here before the sun goes down or the Yule Kutern will get you." I rolled my eyes. Gran, I think the Yule Cat will understand if I don't want to go out in the snow to get clothes. Can't I just come by tomorrow? Her voice went from severe matriarch to a pleading older woman in the blink of an eye. Karen, please. It's your first time away from home and I want you to be safe. I can leave them on the porch if you don't have time to come in, but please come and get them. Please." She sounded so scared that I couldn't argue. I told her I would get dressed and drive over before sunset, and she sighed in relief and thanked me. I dressed warmly in my snow pants and a heavy coat. My muffler and gloves came on next, along with a pair of snow boots and a flashlight just in case. All of this went on over whatever I was already wearing, jeans and a t-shirt and thick socks. And I sighed forlornly as I stepped out into the ankle-deep snow. I put a hand on my old Jeep, but decided against it. My head was a little sloshy, and I knew it would only take a few minutes with the heat blasting before I'd be asleep and sliding on the icy road. Instead, I decided to walk. My grandmother's house was only about two miles from mine, and bracing the cold would sober me up a little. I set off towards the woods that separated her house from mine. Every time I walk those familiar trails, I always feel like I should be scattering breadcrumbs behind me. My grandmother's house lies sheltered in the woods, and they always feel so dense and foreboding whenever I have to walk through them. The snow and the cold made them quiet, the less hardy birds having left and many of the animals asleep for the winter. The tracks, however, told me that there were, indeed, things out there. My legs started to get tired almost at once. If you've never had to slog through deep snow, then I can tell you that it isn't much fun. As the sun began to set, I began to regret not taking the truck. I could hear the snow making the trees crack and sag, and now and again there was a scurry of movement as some small creatures went about their business. Other than the occasional noise, it was as though I had the forest to myself. My loud footsteps made me feel like the last person on earth. When I heard the snow crunch nearby, I swung to see what was there. The sound had startled me. My own feet were the only thing making much noise out there, but I found nothing. By the sound of the crunch, I would have thought it was a reindeer, or maybe a large bird trying to forage below the snow. In the dim light, I couldn't even see if there were prints, and I started slogging a little faster, worried it might be a wild dog or something. The crunching came again, but I shrugged it off as my mind playing tricks. When it crunched again, closer this time, I started moving even faster. Going too fast would be a great way to break an ankle or fall and impale myself on a tree limb, but the crunching and the lack of a source was starting to freak me out. The snowing sky was already overcast, and the sun was setting behind them. The thought of being out here after dark made my skin crawl. My footsteps were loud, cutting through the silence like a foghorn, but somehow I could still hear the steps behind me as I jogged through the ankle-deep snow. What I had thought might be a reindeer or a wild dog now sounded like something much larger. It was very rare, but polar bears sometimes got stuck on ice floes and found their way here. I didn't care to look back as I heard the crunch come down not eight feet behind me. It hit the ground hard enough to dislodge snow from the trees, and I started booking it as best as I could. What the hell was it? Iceland didn't have a lot of large predators, none that came this close to settled areas and my mind began to travel back to a time when I was young and sitting warm around my grandmother's fire. My cousins and I had always loved the stories of trolls and elves, stories of great heroes who slew the former and were aided by the latter. And We always took up sticks when we played and pretended to swing mighty swords at the knees of ugly, hulking trolls. The idea of being devoured by a large and slavering troll, my mind showing me the ones from Harry Potter seemed less fun now, that I was being chased by one in a fairy tale forest. I glanced behind me in a blind panic, not wanting to see but wanting to know nonetheless, and felt my boot sink into a hole. I went down, face first into the snow, and nearly head first into a tree. I rolled over to face whatever was now surely going to get me, preparing to fight. My ancestors had been the men who settled this land. Men who rowed onto the shores in boats with axes and tamed this wilderness, and I would be damned if I would die with my head in the snow, like a blubbering baby. What I saw looming over me was no troll. What I saw looming over me was much worse. When I had drawn him, I had made his legs long and wavy like noodles. I had drawn him with a tabby cat coat and a pair of big, friendly yellow eyes, He had been given the Cheshire Cat's grin and a pair of pointy ears that made him look a little like Batman. He had looked friendly, goofy, something a child couldn't possibly be afraid of. The Yule Cat was none of these things. His coat was black as twice-baked charcoal, and his bones and muscles seemed to shift beneath it like there might be something living just under its skin. Its legs were long and powerful, like a panther or a jaguar and its paws left tracks as big as hubcaps, with claws like stilettos. His mouth was filled with two big teeth. Its ears had been mostly chewed off, sitting on its head like rounded nubs that barely seemed big enough to be ears at all. Its eyes, though, were the worst. Its yellow eyes blazed like torches, their centers crackling red. I was saved by dumb luck. Its yowl had loose some snow from the tree over my head. And when it fell it coated the yule cat's face in a cold blanket of surprise i rolled away and when i did the beast lunged at me it ran smack into the tree i had nearly fallen into and yelled again more snow fell on it then and the cat hissed angrily at its claws shredding the tree to pieces i didn't wait around to be its next scratching post i ran through the snow like a reindeer churning it up as my fear gave me a new purpose i could see the smoke from my grandma's chimney but I knew I had to be another quarter mile from the house. The shadows were gathering, and I knew that I was dead as soon as this thing got its bearings. When it came after me, I realized it had been playing with me before. Its crunching steps sounded dinosauric, and it cleared the distance between us easily. It swiped at me as I ran, and the claws slid easily through my thick jacket. My back suddenly felt cold as the goose down spilled out of it and I began to realize I was running on borrowed time. I had to find some way to lose it. I had to find some way to use its size against it. I needed a place to hide and catch my breath, my lungs burning and my head swimming with exertion. That's when I passed the Himmeltre and realized where I was. The underside was just as I remembered it. It was damp from the snow run, but the frozen snow had mostly covered it, so I was left in a crystalline world domed by white. The cat screamed in agony, shooting a paw between the roots, searching for me in frustration. I huddled against the side of the tree, not wanting to be found by those furtive claws. I stayed as still and quiet as I could. The scrambling went on for what seemed like hours, until finally the cat removed its sooty paw. I heard it crunching off into the forest then, lumbering away like a huge black shadow as it disappeared into the wood. I stayed still, fearing some trick but it went right on moving until its heavy footsteps were only slight crunches in the distance. I stayed put, though blowing on my hands as my wet pants and bleeding leg began to make me shiver. I would freeze to death out here if I stayed too long. I shivered for as long as I could, feeling the temperature drop as the sun crept closer to the ground. Finally, I decided I'd rather be eaten than freeze to death. I crawled out, and when I wasn't immediately set upon... I started stumbling toward my grandmother's house. She was waiting in the doorway for me, a mug of spice cider in her hand and a concerning grimace for my injuries. He found you out there, didn't he? It wasn't a question, but I nodded anyway. I'd been sitting by the fire and letting her feed me and nurse me for the last few hours. She bandaged my leg and took my shredded clothes away. She set a plate of food in front of me, and when I finished the spice cider, she brought me tea and told me to rest. Before she went back into her room to sleep, she dropped a package in my lap. It was a new sheepskin coat, lovely to see and soft to touch. I couldn't imagine what it had cost her, though I knew what it had almost cost me. He won't bother you now, she said. and made her way to bed as I sat by the fire. So heed your elders when they tell you the old stories. I was lucky, but you can't always count on luck. The Yule Cat still lurks in the hills and woods, searching for those he deems ungrateful and underdressed. Don't take the clothes you get for Christmas so lightly, because they could save your life if you find yourself in the sights of the Yule Cat.
1: They walked the path because they had always walked the path. This year there were nine children, swallowed in coats of gray, slogging through drifts of soft powdered snow as a bald tree stood sentinel. They'd come a long way, almost halfway up the mountain, yet still the path twisted forward into distance as far as they could see. They weren't permitted to speak, but the same thoughts were stirring in every one of their minds. At least, Michael hoped this was so. He couldn't possibly be the only one with questions about where they were going and why they needed to be silent and why a tear had slipped from the corner of his mother's eye as she carefully tied his red scarf tightly around his neck. Those were the forbidden questions, questions that were met with frantic gestures to be quiet and fearful glances out the window. Those questions were draped in black. But Michael thought them all the same. As he walked the path, his footsteps swallowed by the snow, his nose was as red as his scarf. He was sure of it and his breath came out of his mouth in misty plumes that drifted through the strangely pale, bleached sky and dissolved into nothingness. He knew that a group of children walked the path every year on the day of the first snow, and that this had always been so, but not much more than that. The details were shrouded in secrecy just as surely as the path was shrouded in winter. Michael stumbled over an unseen root falling on his hands and knees, The other children did not look back, that wasn't permitted either. Michael watched as blotches of scrubby purple spread over his frozen palms like an ink spill, and fear coiled deep in his chest, though he didn't know why. He stood and hurried to catch up with the other kids, his feet sinking deep into the drifts of snow, deeper than they should have. The usual sounds of the woods were smothered by the profound chill in the air, leaving nothing but an oddly breathless silence as if the very Earth was waiting for something. Someone. The peculiar fear in Michael's chest wedged tighter into a small rib cage, winding up his spine with an uncomfortable prickle as he slodged onward, legs aching with the cold. All he wanted was to be back at home, sitting in front of a small fire. He breathed in the cold air, and it seemed to coat his lungs in ice. The path would lead home, for where else would it lead? and he could curl up with a blanket and forget all about it. Forget about the naked trees that seemed to watch him. Forget about the peculiar silence. Forget about the dried up looking sky. A sharp crack from just behind him made him stop short and the fear tightened so suddenly he clutched his chest. The other eight children stopped too, stepping from foot to foot uneasily, but they didn't turn around. Nervous energy filled Michael's veins and made him want to run and hide or fight or something anything but keep walking forward like nothing was wrong, but he knew that once you stepped on to the path, there was no stepping off. Those were the rules. Those had always been the rules. A soft click-click-click echoed oddly in the quiet. As the children pressed onwards through the snow, Michael was sure had come from the forest, but he had been instructed not to take his eyes off the path. The coiled fear lodged into his chest and it clawed its way to his throat and curious hopelessness descended on him like molasses. His numb legs moved out of their own accord, placing one foot in front of the other and moving forward, up that cursed path for what would have been forever or perhaps a few minutes. Here on the mountain, time had lost its meaning. Michael kept his eyes forward, not just because of the rules, but because he was starting to fear what he might see if he didn't. His heart pumped erratically in his little chest and he was quite sure that one of the trees had moved. The click, click, click came again. but This time it wasn't soft or distant. It sounded as though it had come from just barely off the path and grated sharply on his ears. Michael was scared, terrified. His breath came faster so that the thick plumes of fog coming from his mouth nearly obscured his face, entirely giving him a peculiar blurred appearance that none of the children ahead would ever see because they were obedient. They kept their gaze forward. The children followed the rules because they trusted their leaders. Michael trusted his leaders. Surely they wouldn't lead him into danger. Surely they would keep him safe. The thought comforted him, like a hot coal nested in his belly. And when the next click, click, click came, he hardly even shuddered. And when a tall and possibly thin creature stepped, bow-legged, out of the woods, and picked up the first child in long, thin fingers, he looked around wildly without thinking because surely this was not supposed to happen. Surely the village leaders would step out of nowhere, smiles on the faces and declare that this is all one big joke. And yes, they could go home now and sit in front of the fires wrapped in a blanket for as long as they please, sipping the broth made from last year's spring onions and talk cheerfully without anyone to hush them. But he did not see the village leaders. All he saw were more of them, eagerly clicking along, spindly fingers together. And when the creature unhinged its jaw and scooped the little girl in with a charred tongue, gray coat and all, in a horrible, unnatural silence, Michael pushed that dawning truth deep in his subconscious and believed with his heart this was all a mistake. And it was a mistake as the second child was seized. And it was just carelessness after the third was taken. And it was just tragedy as the fourth met the same fate as the others. But when the creatures at last turned to him, smiling widely with human teeth, eyes pale, pinpricks in their narrow faces, the truth washed over him, as cold and bitter as a bucket of ice, water thrown over his head to wake him, the uneasiness he'd felt when his name was called to walk the path, multiplied by a thousand. Fractured images flooded his brain at a top speed, and he understood his mother's strangled gasp as he was chosen was not of pride. He understood the stories of mysterious intruders long, long ago who reached down chimneys and ate what they pleased, and why those stories were shushed by the village leaders. Michael understood everything, but it was too late for him. The red scarf, carefully tied by his mother that morning, crumbled to the snow as a blindly pain shot through his consciousness, leaving it in two, and everything faded. If you didn't look, really look, you couldn't tell the creature from the trees, and so a casual observer. Walking the path would see nothing strange, nothing out of the ordinary. They would perhaps come upon the red scar, spilled onto the snow, pick it up maybe, and wonder, they'd wonder.
0: Much like Halloween, winter comes with its very own set of unique monsters. In many places such as Switzerland, Purchta rides with a throng of demonic-looking helpers, known as Stregel, who love to partake of the feasts offering left out for them on Christmas by people hoping for Pertha's blessings of wealth and health in the new year. In some places, Stregel get to dole out the punishments themselves, and aren't terribly discerning as they rob all bad children and tear them to pieces in the air.
1: This is another Inuit monster that plays with its victims until they die. But its form of torture is so much more sinister and nightmare inducing than tickling its victims to death. Its name gives you a clue to what it does. Iku Ikutayak means the one who drills and her unnamed brother captures victims and takes them to a ritual circle of pillars of ice where the brother holds the victim down while Iku Tayak drills holes into the victims' bodies until they die. The bodies are buried under the pillars of ice. This creature, despite being something out of a horror movie, is no threat now. In one of the Inuit legends, a hero managed to kill Iku Tayak and her brother fled in terror. No such creature haunts the Arctic Circle anymore. Our next myth
0: comes from Japan. And this one is a deadly monster as well. Yukiona, translated as Snow Woman, is said to be the spirit of a beautiful woman who perished in the snow. She is associated with winter. Her method of killing varies with the legend. Some say she leads travelers astray, leaving them to die of exposure in the cold. Others say she'll cause snowstorms to freeze travelers to death. Some say she appears with a child in her arms, known as Yukinko, this child often wears a yukimino, a conical straw snow cloak, traditional in Japan. Yukiona will freeze anyone who tries to take the cloaked yukinko from her. Sometimes, she'll even invade people's homes, blowing the door open and freezing them in their sleep. And other times, she'll only kill men whom she successfully seduces with freezing kisses. The reason for her killing is not known. Some say she does it just because, while others say she drinks the blood, or life force, of her victims. There's no mention of a way to escape the Snow Woman, but there are legends that reveal she has a willingness to show mercy. She has been known to spare people. One legend even tells of her sparing a young man due to his youth and handsome appearance. And later he discovers that the woman he married is in fact Yukiona.
1: Another winter monster, the... Nukalavi from the Orkney Islands a creature that will surely send a chill up your spine. Said to be a type of demon is trapped in the sea for most of the year a powerful female sea spirit but during the winter emerges from the watery depths. The beast has the appearance of a horse with the upper body of a man coming out the middle of its back. The head of the man-like part is three times too big and rolls back and forth as its arms are too long and drags on the ground. The legs of the creature have fin-like appendages. The horse head has a gaping mouth and a single blood red eye. The creature has no skin. All that can be seen on its surface is the powerful muscles and pale sinew, with the black blood pulsating through its yellow veins. It's so dangerous, its name is hardly ever spoken, whispered only in hushed tones that were quickly followed up by a prayer. If you see this creature, it will pursue you, and the only way to escape it is to cross a running body of fresh water. As a creature of the sea and of the sickness, the Knuckle levi cannot stand fresh water. No matter where you go, no matter the times or what you believe in, there is an explanation or myth or story for everything. Yeah, and the fact that it's just, just passed down and like kind of sucks to
0: like realize that a lot of the you know the things that you wanted to believe in as a kid that they all have rational explanations. Mm-hmm. But I think it's even more beautiful to realize like that. We came up with this, and we've been right. passing it down, and it's strong enough and impressionable enough for us want- to want to keep telling these stories and make new stories to explain the world around us and kind of bring that magic or fear to children, make- laced right. with some magic. <laughs>
1: for sure,
0: lots it of just makes life scaring more children shit. We just want the children to stay alive, <laughs> right? Just fucking listen. <laughs> Like, you know, don't show off your wealth or people will eat you. If that only wasn't a thing still. (laughs) (laughs) Right? Figuratively and literally. Right. Uh, And don't leave your house after dark because that's when the elves and
1: gnomes roam about and they'll bite you. And it's poisonous. Are there any you grew up with that you like solely really believed in until you were of age to realize maybe not so true
0: so since i don't come from like a culture where we really celebrate christmas or have winters in our <laughs> country doesn't right. get unless you're in the mountains um but it's really not like that kind of atmosphere i was told more of like religious scary tales right. and the only creature i was told about is the jinn, and i was terrified of the jinn. Mm-hmm. and i was told of People that my family knew that were possessed by the jinn, and there was a story once of my grandma that she had been possessed by a jinn. And my cousins who lived like across the street from her, it was a thunderstorm, and they saw when the when like lightning hit that my grandma was like standing in the her windowsill, like this old woman just standing in the windowsill, and the lightning flashed, and they could see her like her black eyes possessed oh <laughs> um and it felt like she was like flying to them That's but scary. then the light went away and she was not there um, hmm. yeah i definitely had the fear of the jinn yeah. instilled in me what about you
1: no i would all, i would just say the same thing more of just the religious kind of stories or threats in a way Definitely being up north, you heard a lot of, like, I guess what would people call, like, the abominable snowman or the, like, Bigfoot or something, just because there's so much Mm -hmm. wilderness up there. But, no, nothing I was taught at home to be, like, fearful of. It was more like, if you don't do this, you're going to hell. (laughs) And I was like, yeah, yeah, this is hell on earth. I got it. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Did you ever see any creatures up there, up north? No. I think as a kid I was too innocent to even be looking for something like that. Mm-hmm. But definitely like living in a trailer park, kind of in the middle of nowhere, it wasn't like the suburbs. It was definitely like eerie out there, especially mm-hmm. when it was the solstice of only a couple hours of light and it was mm-hmm. just dark all the time. I know if I was there now I my brain would have in me would have me see shit or hear
0: shit. <laughs> did you experience like the 30 days of night and yeah. 30 days of pure day? Yeah. How did you guys or how how was that?
1: <laughs> I think cuz I was born there it was normal to me. Um looking back on it the days seem like doable cuz you just put some blackout curtains up and you're fine. But As an adult, I couldn't imagine doing the solstice of dark. And my mom used to always tell me, like, Bess, there's a lot of, you know, addicts and alcoholics and suicides. Because, you know, just being alone out here. And then when it gets dark and it's cold and there's nothing else to do, that's what people do. And as a kid, I was like, okay. But now I'm like, that'd be me. You know, like, it's cold. Yeah where it got it's isolating yeah it's i couldn't imagine like living alone out there like that so yeah as a kid it was normal but leaving and realizing it's not like that everywhere i was like oh yeah that's that's way different (laughs) that'd be crazy to go to school in the dark yeah i would leave school and it would literally be like pitch black outside oh my god <laughs> it's, it's weird it's even weird to like think of that like the memories i do have like getting out of school what elementary probably gets out at like two or three mm-hmm. and it's it's just blackout and you're just like damn <laughs> <laughs> and it's cold you know so that makes it even like worse y'all thought halloween was just spooky season baby nah We got winter tales for you, too. (laughs) Halloween's just
0: an appetizer for these spooky creatures. Exactly. Because these creatures do kind of bleed in from Halloween as well, but it's all associated with the harvest time and the darkness,
1: and Halloween's just the beginning. Mm -hmm. Especially when you might live somewhere where it doesn't actually ever feel like fall or winter or Christmas. Or anything of the nature. We gotta we gotta have these to make us feel exactly. like it's we're experiencing the seasons. Yeah. If you live in Satan's <laughs> asshole as well, hopefully this gives you some chills yes. that you need. Sip on your nasty ass eggnog, listen to a pod, get into the mood. <laughs> I'll put up my black Christmas tree per usual. Let my cats fuck it up. <laughs> as they deserve backs. They wait all year for it. Those
0: little Yule cats. <laughs> Literally. <laughs> so this winter season, have a great time. Get spooky or get festive.
1: Do whatever you want. Just be a good person. Yeah, stay warm and don't, don't go outside too deep into the darkness, the cold, the winter, ice. You know, all those things. The things that We don't know. Yeah. We don't get here. They lurk out there. Bye.